Lord, your word uh, encourages us. In Psalm, the psalmist says, How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I've hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Lord, we pray for these young ones that they would treasure your word in their hearts, that, God, you would speak to them in ways that they would know that your word is not just uh, idle words, but it's living and active, and it is a treasure to be, to be held tightly in their hearts. And Holy Spirit, would you meet with us uh, as well as we listen to your word? Would you bring conviction? Would you bring comfort? Would you empower us? and be, transform us after the image of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Faith and to our final message in the Gospel of Luke as we've been looking at the prayers of Luke and specifically on the call to persistent prayer. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we heard from, uh, from Vic King, one of our, our members, and uh, he's in our seminary program here, here at LAMP, and he gave us an encouragement from Luke 18 for us to, to come to God, not like the unjust judge who didn't care about people, he didn't care about justice, but the God who is passionate about justice, who cares very deeply about people, that we might continue to be persistent in coming to him with our requests. And last week, we looked at uh, Jesus' call to come to him persistently in prayer through Luke 11, in the uh, disciples' prayer, or the Lord's prayer as we understand it. And there, Jesus made it very clear that the nature of how we are to look at God is not the reluctant friend or the distant neighbor, but as the eager neighbor who is ready and willing to open the door and to be generous to us, as the loving, generous father who comes to us, or who wants us to come to him with boundless uh, boldness, uh, without any kind of hesitation, uh, that we would become abandoned uh, to him as a loving father that he is. And uh, we are to ask for things, ask for our needs to be met, ask for things of the kingdom to be expanded, ask for justice, uh, and ask for the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit. But today, as we look at the call to persistent prayer, uh, we find that Jesus calls us to persist in something else. He calls us to persist in prayer as a chief means to fight temptation, as the means to keep from falling into sin or the onslaughts of the spiritual forces that desperately seek to defeat us. Immediately before our passage, Jesus meets with his disciples in that last supper, and he told Peter that Satan had asked that he would sift him as wheat. And Jesus is now trying to prepare his disciples for his soon coming departure, and he tells these disciples of what to expect, and he leads them to this Garden of Gethsemane, this Mount of Olives, which is a place outside of Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem this, this week of Passover. Uh, it was teeming with people, but the disciples every night would go back to this Mount of Olives, to this Garden of Gethsemane, which apparently was a place that 
uh, were gardens that wealthy people who lived in Jerusalem kept. And it was possible that there, there was a wealthy friend that Jesus uh, had that allowed him and his disciples to go there on, in the evenings. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples just moments before his arrest and ultimate crucifixion. Let's consider Luke 22, starting with verse 39. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. The word of the Lord. Sometimes after an extremely stressful day, I will find myself watching extreme cage fighting. Where two men who are skilled in mixed martial arts face each other in this caged octagon in what appears to be the fight of their lives. And I will often say to the guy that's on, the, on his back being beaten, I feel you. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever, like, Googled your name to find out if there's another person that has your name in the world. I found one other Craig Garriott in the world. His name is Craig Garriott. He lives in L.A., and he apparently was the extreme MMA heavyweight champion for a period of time. And he is now the coach of South Bay Slammers. Now, I really can't say it makes me feel better watching somebody else get beat up. But it does remind me of what the Apostle Paul's frequent description of the Christian life is. It's a fight. Paul gets to the end of his life, and he sums up it by saying, I have fought the good fight. And he tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes reference to the Corinthian Isthmian Games, the predecessor of our Olympics. Like those athletes who go into strict training and discipline to compete in games uh, to get a garland of a crown that would not last. Paul says to the believers to exert and to discipline themselves in such a way to get a crown that will last forever. And he adds, I do not fight like a man beating the air. Paul is no shadow boxer. He says, no, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. And there Paul makes an allusion to the boxing matches in those 
lesbian games where it is recorded that athletes box sometimes up to four hours until one competitor was knocked out. Boxing was the most brutal event. And at times, so is the Christian life. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus calls his disciples to one of those times. Here, Jesus calls his disciples then, and he calls us now to fight in prayer. And specifically, we see that Jesus calls us to fight temptation through prayer. And he also, we also see that we fall in temptation because our prayer life is weak, but that Jesus is strong, and he fights for us in prayer when we fail. Now, I need to say that Jesus' Jesus' calling to his disciples to fight in prayer is really a secondary theme of this text. If I were to preach this passage apart from a series of the call to persistent prayer, I would say that the bigger story, the greater theme here is that Jesus is fighting in prayer and that Jesus agonizes in prayer to avoid the cup of God's wrath, that Jesus agonizes in prayer to accept the cup of God's wrath, and that Jesus finds strength in prayer to face the cup of God's wrath. But before we move on to the sub-theme, I think it's wise for us to linger some in this greater and larger story. One writer said in reference to this passage, Now, we now enter into the inner sanctuary of the gospel history and behold the all-inspiring commencement of our Lord's passion, a suffering which ended only after he had endured the experience of being totally forsaken by God on the cross and entered into the obscure depths of death. Here we see the final drama of his voluntary and complete self-surrender to God. Here we see Jesus in the fight not only for his physical life, but more the fight of his soul. Jesus in the garden, under the cover of darkness, pleaded with his father at least three times to remove this cup from him. What was this cup that Jesus so desperately pleaded to have removed? Well, earlier in the evening, Jesus, in the Last Supper with his disciples, gave them this cup of wine, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is about to have his own blood poured out for his disciples and for all who believe in him. The cup that Jesus was about to drink was the cup of the wine of God's holy wrath and judgment against sin and sinners. The scriptures tells us that the soul that sins shall die. The God of the scriptures is not an indulgent God who says, well, that's okay, I can overlook that. You don't have to worry about your crimes or your sins. He cannot overlook sin. His forgiveness is not cheap grace. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is trying to get ready for this great exchange. He says in John, For this very reason I came to this hour, but now staring down the barrel of his execution, Jesus is literally shaking in his bones. It was not 
so much the horror of the Roman crucifixion that Jesus was trembling at, which certainly would be worth trembling at. Many other noble Christians later actually experienced that, but they went there with courage like the Apostle Peter. No, Jesus trembled at the spiritual death of being utterly forsaken by God. Uh, bear with me with a, some of a long quote from Norval Gildenheiss. He says, How dreadful must the idea have been to Christ, who had from eternity lived the most intimate and unbroken communion with his Father, that he would have to endure all this. How terrible the knowledge that he who himself was without sin would on the accursed tree be sentenced like a condemned criminal, be laden with the sin of all mankind as the willing and sacrificial Lamb of God. When we hear his words on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The veil is lifted for a moment once more that we may see something of what he endured for the sake of a guilty world. So it's important to linger on this greater truth, this theme of this passage, that Jesus is this man of sorrows who in his humanity being overwhelmed by the thought of his death to fully drink the horrible wrath of God to the very dregs. For this Jesus wrestled and fought in prayer. But this Jesus wrestled and fought in prayer for you and for me. Any ability of us as his people to persist in prayer must flow out of that tremendous fight of prayer that Jesus had for us in the garden. And so Jesus fights the temptation to abandon God's will. And here Jesus calls his disciples to fight temptation through prayer. And so when he came to the place, he tells his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we find that in the other occasions, Jesus uh, first had his larger group of disciples come into the garden. He tells them to watch and pray. And he takes Peter, James, and John with him a little further distance, and he has them, and he says, watch and pray. And then Jesus goes a, a stone's throw away. They can hear him in his agony, but he calls them to pray. And maybe they stayed up for a period of time as they heard Jesus agonizing, but they became overwhelmed and they fell asleep. But Jesus tells these disciples to watch and pray. At the end, he tells them with this rebuke, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, Jesus talked about our call to pray about temptation, and we heard that in the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Stott says behind these words that Jesus gave us to pray are the implications that the devil is too strong for us, that we are too weak to stand up to him, but that by our Heavenly Father, but our Heavenly Father will deliver us if we call upon him. And so we are encouraged to pray and to recognize the spiritual forces around us that seek to defeat us. We're encouraged to not underestimate the spiritual enemy that we have. Paul talks to the Corinthians in a particular occasion where a certain member of their church had fallen into immorality, sleeping with uh, his stepmother. And uh, in the second chapter, it appears that this brother had repented and had confessed. And, 
And Paul is encouraging the body to offer God's grace and forgiveness and to welcome this brother back. And he says, he says, if I have for, uh, what I have forgiven, he says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And Paul is warning the Corinthians not to fall into unforgiveness and not to allow Satan to defeat and to destroy and to divide the body. Satan has schemes. He has strategies. He, we call them the wiles of the devil. Uh, he has tactical shrewdness. He is a deceiver. And he will seek to dis deceive and to seduce for our destruction. But Jesus, we find in 1 John 3, 8, says the reason the Son appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so Jesus, on the cross, he destroyed that work of Satan against us. Jesus destroyed the devil's power. But now, after the resurrection, the satanic forces which cannot reach the Messiah must content themselves with resisting the expansion of his kingdom. And so in that resistance, he seeks uh, to distort or to suppress the message of good news to go into the world, to blind the eyes of unbelievers, to seek to snatch away the seed of the world, word that's planted. But he also goes after believers. And what gives you and I the power to overcome and stand strong? Well, we heard the passage from Ephesians 6 where Paul tells the Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It is not a strength in ourselves. It's not a strength in our abilities to think through things or our resources, our material things. It is be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And so Paul tells them to put on the full armor of God. And what is that full armor? Well, ultimately, it's putting on Christ. It is living in faith in Christ who surrounds us with his truth and with his his, his grace and his righteousness. And, but at the end of that, as part of that full armor, and he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You know, this past uh, a few weeks ago, our mayor, Stephanie Rollings-Blake, uh, and law enforcement officials and prosecutors created what they call a round-the-clock war room to address the spike of violence that has hit Baltimore since the death of Freddie Gray. Uh, in May, there were 42 uh, murders in our city. And this response by our mayor and by the police officials and was to recognize that uh, crime is not static. And they said, neither can we be static. And so they created this war room to think through how to address uh, the, the violence, the spike of violence in our city. And the question for us, believers, is where is our war room? Where, where do we go to address the violence, the spiritual violence that's destroying so many lives? Because at the heart of all that physical violence, there is a spiritual violence that's taken place. And the question we have to ask, where is our war room and are we present? And are we engaged? And are we praying? We have to ask ourselves those questions. Uh, Paul talks about Epaphras in Colossians 
who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. And that word, wrestling, is the word, that's from, the Greek word is agogizomai, which is from the word agony. <laughs> it means to strive, to fight, to labor uh, fervently in a contest. Uh, and so we are called to be prayer wrestlers. Uh, one of the things that we, we have at Faith is uh, a ministry of, of prayer wrestlers, and, and many of you are on that list, and anyone that wants to be uh, part of the prayer wrestlers team at Faith uh, can just ask the office, please put me on the prayer wrestlers list, and, and often, every week, we'll get prayer requests that people will send in. Can you pray for this? Uh, actually, uh, we got a request from Ann Malio. Uh, she asked us to pray for... Uh, for northern Nigeria and the neighboring Cameroon and Chad because of the terrorism of the group Boko Haram. Apparently, uh, two women who were dressed as beggars uh, uh, had set themselves uh, with bombs and explosives and, and blew up themselves up as, as well as several dozen, dozen bystanders. And she just asked for the body to be praying for God's peace and for God's strength and for, for those, those regions of our world. Um, the other prayer request that came this past week was uh, concerning Tim Hall, who is Debbie uh, Dortzbach's brother, uh, who apparently had uh, a low blood pressure, and it was a big concern whether he was going to make it. Uh, and within a 24-hour period, it was, he was doing very well, and they sent him home. And it was like an immediate answer to prayer. Amazing, isn't it, that God answers prayer? You know, <laughs> some... <laughs> Some time ago, Johns Hopkins, uh, in response to uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital, in response to just empirical data that, that had been surfacing uh, from a study on prayer for patients, uh, they had recognized that when they had a group of patients who had been prayed for, uh, they performed and their health was so much better and improved so much more uh, in like 26 different criteria than a group of people who did not have specific prayer for. And so they were calling for churches to set up groups. Uh, would you pray for these patients? And we were one of those churches, and we would gather together as a group of people. They didn't give us a lot of information. They gave us the first name and some basic details. They said, you cannot go and visit these patients. <laughs> you can't get them, but we want you to just pray for them. Here's Johns Hopkins Hospital asking churches to pray. You know. I guess uh, it would be considered medical malpractice if a doctor knew that they had something to help a patient and refused to give it to them. And so prayer appears to be one of those things just from pure empirical data. But we don't need just a pure empirical. We know it as believers. God answers prayer. It is a super powerful resource. Do you realize what you possess? And so Jesus calls his disciples to pray, to, to fight temptation. But we also see that we fall in temptation because our prayer life is weak. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Now, at this point, you know, Jesus had been warning his disciples over and over again that he would be arrested 
that he would be handed over to the authorities, he would be tortured, and he would, he would, he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise again. And he told them, of course, they just, it was all nonsense. They couldn't understand what he was saying. But now, here in this last evening, he walks into Jerusalem with the great cheers of the throngs of people. But just in a few days, there's been a great reversal of the crowds. And Jesus had cleared out the, uh, the temple courts, uh, chasing out the money changers. He had raised and had been a growing hatred among the religious leaders of Jerusalem who wanted to kill him and were looking for a way to kill him. The disciples knew that their Messiah, their, their Christ, was in trouble. And now he is telling them again that he is going to be handed over, that he will, he will be killed, he will be crucified. And they have this last supper, and Jesus shows a, he gives them a surprise because the Passover supper didn't have this extension of the bread like Jesus gave. This is my body broken for you, eat in remembrance of me. They didn't have uh, the cup. This is the cup of in my blood shed for the remission of sins. Drink of this in remembrance of me. They didn't have these things, but now it was sinking into them that yes, it, our Lord, our Messiah that we've been following these years is now very deeply in trouble, and it might be that he will be arrested and killed. But it still didn't sink into them. But they, it says in Luke's account that they're overwhelmed with sorrow. They are exhausted from the events of the day. And they come to the garden, which has been the place that they would, would you know, rest and get renewal. But Jesus says, don't go to sleep. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And he tells Peter, can't you stay up for just one hour with me? Just watch and pray. But what every single occasion, and there were three different occasions, Jesus would come back and his disciples would be sleeping. He would rebuke them. There was one occasion he just came back and he just looked at them. They were just all slumbering, sleeping disciples. That never happens to anyone here, does it? Well, the reality is that they did fall asleep. And the reality is that they, they did fall. Because just in moments later, Jesus would indeed be arrested. And Jesus told them that when he would be arrested, that the sheep would scatter. And so we find that they all abandoned Jesus. And, of course, Jesus told Peter that before the roaster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter couldn't even comprehend that. He was ready to die. He had all the bravado that he was going to uh, fight for his Lord, but yet we find that Peter utterly falls. How is it that they fell? How is it that these disciples fell from such a great fall after being with their Lord for three years in his presence, all abandoning him, and here's the chief of the apostles denying Christ, not just once, not twice, three times. I never knew the man. How is it? They're weak. They are weak. But they chose to sin. You know, Paul says, No temptation has seized you but which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way out, an escape, so that you may be able to endure it. The only reason that you and I fall into sin 
is because we have chosen to. We have willed to. It is not because it's too much for us or that Satan made me do it or this person is to blame. Paul makes it very clear the reason that you and I fall into sin is because we have chosen to. And the reason that Jesus raises here is because we are weak in prayer. We did not stay up for that hour to pray. You know, the world has had to watch the great demise of a major American figure in our land, Bill Cosby, once considered a great example of a strong father and husband who confessed to serial drugging and exploiting young women. There does not appear to be any repentance or remorse, and I think it can be said that Bill Cosby's prayer life <clears throat> and experience with God as his father was weak. As far as I know, Bill Cosby did not have a relationship with God as his father. And, you know, we should pray for him. And we should pray uh, for his family and for his marriage and for those who were abused by him, that God's healing and justice would reign. I think of Job 31, where he says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her, for that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. Uprooted my harvest. I think we are watching that harvest being uprooted in this man's life. <clears throat> but Satan isn't just after the downfall and the disgrace and destruction of public figures of entertainment. He works his schemes, particularly to defeat children of light and their leaders. And closer to home, one of our own uh, pastors of a very prominent church uh, in Florida, PCA Church, uh, the son, grandson of Billy Graham, also fell uh, and had to resign uh, his pastorate within the last month due to uh, marital unfaithfulness. He wrote this book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. I have that book. I have read that book. It's a good book. And he talks about how, it talks about grace, the grace of God, that, that uh, it will help you push deeper into the gospel and push the gospel message more deeply into every corner of your life. That's the claim of this book. And yet, for his own life, it wasn't enough. You know, just knowing the truth, just knowing the truth intellectually, spouting proper theology isn't enough. Uh, there was a passage, uh, Stafford Carson said, all the causes of visible and evident to all failures stem from a failure to cultivate the inner life, the knowledge of your heart, the ability to use the gospel in yourself, the reality of God in prayer. Nothing must take priority over the quantity and quality of time devoted to cultivating your inner life and your relationship with God. So the first thing is this. The inner life must have a priority over the outer life. Character is far more important than skills in Christian leadership. And so we find that uh, one person said, if millions of Christians can be tempted to neglect church, the scriptures, prayer, and other dynamics of spiritual life, they can be kept at a subsistence level of strength which will offer little threat to the kingdom of evil. If they can be discreetly steered into forms of sin which are 
in obvious conformity to the world, not only will their own spiritual lives be weakened, but they will turn others away from the Messiah. If teachers and preachers can be tempted to believe and propagate falsehood and, fab and the fabric of the kingdom will be weakened. Dull, half-committed, lukewarm, anemic believers are no threat to the powers of darkness and thus, and thus draw no fire. But active agents of the kingdom can expect a lifetime of reoccurring attacks. And so we, if you're seeking to be faithful, you can expect attacks. And if you're not, if you're just kind of just sitting in warming pews possibly, and I don't think anybody here is doing that, then Satan has already captured you. And so we fall. Leaders fall. We're all susceptible to fall. People fall. The apostles fell. Who will save us from falling? <laughs> Who will save us in our weakness in prayer? Well, Jesus. And what we see in this passage finally is that Jesus fights for us in prayer. Jesus fights for us in prayer. So every single time that Jesus came back and saw his disciples sleeping, yes, he did rebuke them. Yes, they just went back to sleep. But Jesus went back to fight in prayer. He's fighting in prayer. And of course, he asked for the cup to be removed. But he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Three times he asked for that cup to be removed. But three times Jesus kept coming to affirm his commitment to follow through with this horrible execution and this horrible wrath of his father where he would be removed from his presence. And why do we have this account of Jesus' prayer? Why do we have this Garden of Gethsemane account? Well, one pastor says, Jesus' humble prayer in Gethsemane is part of Jesus' suffering for us. Christ praying for himself that he might be strengthened for the hours ahead, but the event recorded in Scripture is for you and I. We are given to know not only the intense agony Jesus felt in the moments immediately before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, but also why he felt it. A cruel and violent death impends, and more than that, the cup of the Lord's wrath upon sin. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that this is that this so that Christ's suffering and death might be a means of strength against our own temptations. There was no sin not died for at Calvary. There was no sin which Jesus shed blood did not cover. And because Jesus drained the cup of the Father's wrath, he gives us to drink with joy the cup of salvation in his blood. And so we are given this event to let us peek in to the very heart of God, the very heart of Jesus at the highest level of his agony and the temptation to say, no, they're not worth it. Look at they're sleeping. They're going to deny me. I am not going to go to the cross for them. But Jesus refused all of that. And he says, no, I love them. I love them even in their weakness. I love them even though they're enemies of me and they'll deny me. I love them and I'm pursuing them. And Jesus does the same for you. <clears throat> he comes after you. He comes after you when you fall asleep. He comes after you when you fall in your sin. He loves you in the midst of all of your mess because he loves you. <laughs> and he comes after you. And this is the gospel of grace. And so Jesus, he cries out. 
He cries out. And we find in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is called this permanent high priest that we have. And he says, Jesus, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede. Here's the deal. When you and I fail in prayer, and we do, Jesus doesn't. Jesus is praying even now. Isn't that something? Because you and I will fail in prayer. We'll be weak in prayer, but Jesus isn't. He's staying up. He never slumbers or sleeps. He's always praying. Jesus is interceding even now while you're hearing these words. And then through a weak vessel, he is fortifying you. He is praying for you even now that you would be strong. But when you fall, when you fail, Jesus is strong still. And so this is the gospel of grace. How do we strengthen our prayer lives? It's not like, well, if you don't pray more, you're just going to be a, a loser Christian. The reason that we should pray more is because we have a Savior who prays all the time for us. And that even when we fall and fail, that he is with us and he continues to strengthen us. He's not going to let us go. Uh, Paul Miller says, studies have shown that 90% of people in our churches do not have a praying life. People, most people feel guilty, confusion and frustration. People can articulate doctrines of atonement. But internally, there is no functional, ongoing relationship with their father. This kind of Christianity cannot withstand the onslaught of a postmodern world. It is a tinderbox for cynicism. And he, he asks this question, so how do we, how do we develop a praying life? And this is what he says. The feeling of helplessness is necessary. So if you feel really lousy about your prayer life, that's the first step. I feel really lousy about my prayer life. Just confess that. I feel really lousy about my prayer Just say, I, my prayer life really stinks. You just say that, you know. I don't know how God can love me. You can say anything, anything you want. Uh, <clears throat> but feeling that you are completely unable to do life on your own, to do life without Jesus is necessary. God needs to be active in all the details of your life. And he says he thinks the big reason why Jesus constantly refers to coming to the kingdom of God like children is because that's how we're supposed to come, like children. And he says, what does it mean to come like a child in your prayer time? Well, you get out of bed and you start praying, and it is not long until your mind begins to wander to the problems that you have. You think there is something wrong with you, and there is. You need Jesus. <laughs> Being a child in prayer means just come. Children are not tied up in all the details when they come to their parents. They just come. Little children never get frozen in their selfishness. They become totally self-absorbed. As parents, we don't scold them for being self-absorbed or fearful. That is just who they are. This is the gospel, the welcoming heart of God. And so Jesus calls us to come like children, all messed up, uh, he calls us to come who are weary and heavy laden. He doesn't says, he says, uh, when, when do we forget when it comes to prayer? The dirty, the muddy, you is the real you. Don't try to put on spiritual facade in prayer. You can talk to God about whatever is on your heart, so just come. Be weak and open in prayer before God. It is the same as the gospel. And so he says, God cheers when we come to him with our wobbling, unsteady prayers. The criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness, come overwhelmed with life, 
Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Come dirty. So, you know, here's the deal. We're to fight in prayer against temptation, but we will fail in prayer. But Jesus prays for us still. And Jesus is our Savior. We need him so much. And because he died for us and he went to the agony of the, the, the abandonment of his father, Jesus will not abandon you. So how do we encourage prayer? So, any, you know, I think uh, I'm going to have a dinner discussion on rising prayer uh, at my house on August the 30th. It's uh, Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. And it's just going to be a discussion about how do we raise the level of prayer in our body that we might experience the greater joy of God and the fulfillment of God's mission among us. Um, how can it be a gospel-centered, not guilt-driven? How can it be more embedded as the natural flow of our, in our body? Uh, how can we just be a praying church? And so uh, I'll be, you'll be hearing more announcements about that, but if you want to come, we'll have a few, some articles and some resources to think about before we come, and we'll just have a discussion, a dinner, and some prayer time, and we'll come as children, messy, dirty, just giving our all to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you uh, show us this picture in Gethsemane. Lord, the, the disciples utterly failed you. Uh, they just fell asleep. They could not watch and pray. And yet, Lord, you love them still. And you use them in powerful, mighty ways. And Lord, you want to love us still and use us even in this hour to fulfill your kingdom purposes. Lord, help us not to lose sight of this grace. And Lord, help us to be driven by that grace to a greater prayer life. Lord, teach us to pray that we might be full of your joy and see your kingdom come. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.